0: you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike
1: King.
2: Welcome back and today in this two-parter. First up, we have a news bonanza as we discuss the latest ocean and air movements. What next for MSC and Maersk? why the legal cost of cyber attacks is on the rise and where and why container lines are cutting capacity. We also hear about a new scheme to name and shame the best and worst container line performers on environmental efficiency. A risky but brave initiative indeed and hopefully one that benefits the environment, not the legal profession. And in part two, we turn to the weather when I speak to two thought leaders whose business is understanding the link between more severe climate patterns and logistics risks. They explain how much extreme storms are already adding to the cost of trade and the price of new port infrastructure, and what steps you can take to prepare for what we can probably no longer call the unforeseen, because severe weather is coming to a port near you. I'm joined today by a bevy of returning guests, the Lodestars, Alex Lenane, TAC Index's Peyton Bennett, and the man with the best shirts in shipping, it's Zeniter's Peter Sand. They're followed by the unrivaled University of Oxford climate expert and author, Jasper Bashore, and the
3: unmistakable voice of broadcast meteorologist, Michael Page. Remember that... In a couple of years, somewhere where I am in the Northeast in Boston, we could have several days a month where we're getting flooding with no storm. It's a beautiful blue sky day here, and we have to think, okay, we could be getting disruptive flooding. Maybe it's only a foot, two feet as the port, but that's a problem. You can't have water you know, where you're trying to move cargo. So you have to think, even if there's not a storm, we're going to have this problem that we have to live with daily.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Welcome back, one and all. If you didn't know already, this podcast is available on all platforms and on the Loadstar.com, where you can also find the world's best supply chain news every day from all around the globe. We've got a lot to get through today. In part two, I'm looking at how weather and climate change is posing both a short and long-term risk to supply chains and global trade. When I have two fantastic guests in the shape of certified broadcast meteorologist, Michael Page, and environmental change expert, Jasper Vershaw from Oxford University. But first up, we're looking at what's new in global freight and logistics. And I'm delighted to be joined by two people who know their way around both. Alex low Lodestar publisher, and Peter Sand. Zenitha, Chief Analyst. Welcome back,
4: guys. How are you both? Blender, thanks for having me back in this good company, Mike. Good to be here again.
5: Nice to see you, Mike and Peter. Hi. Peter, if I
2: may turn to you first, uh, because we sort of can't not cover this. The two M Alliance, Maersk and MSC, are getting divorced, not now, but later. Was this split inevitable due to their very different strategies?
4: Well, now that the divorce is announced, obviously, it seems like a no-brainer saying that this was inevitable. I think the jury was out for quite a long time. But I think it's also fair when you look at the different companies and the different strategies, they have evolved down two very different paths in the past, say, five years or so. So obviously, something was in the making. Why it happens now? Well, you've got a change at the helm at, at Maersk. And I guess he also needs to step in and make his mark from the very first day. So I take this as as a multi-tier strategy. Inevitable, maybe, maybe not, but for sure something that will uh, will keep us uh, excited about what comes next for those two main carriers.
2: What do you think will come next? I mean, we've heard people speculating about the impact on the alliance system, the impact possibly on rates. What's
4: your take? Well, I try not to speculate, but I try to speak out loud on what I think could happen. So for Merck claiming their fame as a global integrator, that could mean that they will perhaps go out and discontinue some services where they are not peak of their game. Because if they want to deliver a top-performing door-to-door service that can compete with the very top freight forwarders on a global scale also, they cannot serve everyone everywhere. So I see a potential concentration of their business and for Mersk, I think it's, it's also interesting to see what they're doing now, being interesting in race logistics offering. They're not only interested in port terminals in Africa, but they seem to be more keen on just utilising the world's largest fleet, doing what they have done so good, focusing on spot trade and terminal-to-terminal business. And I'm sure the Lodestall
2: will be following that story as it progresses, and, and we see exactly where those companies are going to go. Alex, not Petcha, that was the cyber attack that devastated MERS back in 2018, I believe. Expeditors has been on the end of a cyber attack and they're now facing legal claims from customers as a result.
5: That's right, Mike. Yeah. So last year, Expeditors, yeah, suffered a a cyber attack. Um, At the time, the media was quite heavily criticised for not reporting it very much. I mean, we we covered it as much as possible, but I'd sort of like to set the record straight now by saying that It's very difficult for media to cover cyber attacks because police and authorities tell companies not to talk about it because they're very often ransomware attacks. So it's not something they really want to publicize. And also, obviously, it's quite bad publicity as well. So they never really want to talk about it. But because of this court case, we're getting a little insight into what happened at Expeditors. So one of its customers that it's had for quite a long time, I think about 15 years, iRobot, which makes household robots. They're suing it because they believe expediters didn't have a business continuity plan. They didn't have the correct insurance to cover losses. And they say they didn't contact them. They weren't helpful, or not, all the rest of it. So they're facing this quite large legal claim. And yeah, it, like I say, it gives us quite a nice little insight into what happens when, when a forwarder faces the downturn of all its systems. And are there any more claims on the horizon that we know about? Well, I don't think against expediters, but I do think that this will be a really important case because it's very hard for companies to argue one way or another that they had a sufficient business continuity plan in case. So if i wins this, I think forwarders are gonna to have to look very, very hard at how they react following a cyber attack and how they keep their customers' businesses going. I think it's a really important case. And
2: does this mean that there's lessons out there for other forwarders? Or even for shippers, in terms of getting out the right insurance in cases of shutdown due to cyber attack, or any liabilities that might follow.
5: Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's very important. I mean, one of the things that iRobot did was to immediately try and get all its stock out of Expedite's warehouses and switch logistics providers. Which, as anyone knows, is a pretty hard thing to try to do overnight. So it might mean that shippers will have to start looking at what their plan B would be if they can no longer sell their stock. I mean, because iRobot's a consumer organisation and expeditors was doing its sort of home delivery and it lost all sight of its inventory, it may well be that shippers have to to rethink what they do if this happens. Another story,
2: Alex, that you've been on is, uh, well, air freight booking platforms, Cargo One and Cargo AI.
5: They're not that happy, or rather they're not happy with each other. Well, listen, Slightly limited in what I want to say publicly, but yeah, there's, they seem to be having a slight sort of bit of a barney, but they won't be happy with me for saying that. Cargo One, which is backed by venture capital, was forced to do some job cuts. Cargo AI has come out quite stridently talking about how VC backs companies are much more likely to face job losses than companies founded with strategic investment like Cargo AI is. I don't know... Really, if that's why Cargo One had to cut jobs. Cargo AI claims that it's about volatility and KPIs of shareholders. So it's, it's just quite an interesting little story, really. And then, um, of course, so so you've got basically four looking platforms. You've got Freitas which has just done an IPO. Cargo One, which is VC backed. Cargo AI and Avery Aviation Software are both backed by strategic investors. So, it'll be interesting to see which one does come out or which one's come out the most stable of all of those.
2: And we've seen a lot of redundancies. Obviously, the market's in a downturn, but would I be right to say that we're seeing a lot more redundancy where venture capital is involved, or is it just more public, do you think?
5: It's really hard to know. But yes, where the redundancies have been, have been venture capital backed companies. You've got Foto, which lost some staff before Christmas. Flexport, obviously, is probably the most famous one. But then equally, they're all tech companies. And and if you look at the tech company jobs at the moment, you've got Microsoft, Salesforce, they're all losing jobs. It might simply be a coincidence or the fact that tech companies are often VC-backed. It's very hard to tell, but there are redundancies out there for sure.
2: Well, hopefully we don't see too many more. Maybe the market will start coming back a bit later on, but we'll speak to Peter about that shortly well, But in the meantime, I'm just going to do a seamless hop, skip and a jump to Peyton Burnett, TAC Index MD, for a little insight into an air cargo market. Well, it's been less than buoyant just lately. Hello, Peyton. Hi, Mike. Peyton, are you still on this uh, three-day lunch with the rugby team or between meetings, I think you sometimes call it? Or is that all over now?
0: Not yet. The the, the competition's at the end of the month, but there's a... Lots of management work to do beforehand, so uh, we're having a few of the management team flying over to do some groundwork in Bangkok, so that sounds fun. The
2: journalist welcome. Oh, yeah, and you can come next time. (laughs) Okay, that's going straight in the diary. Patent air cargo markets, they're a little bit flat, are they?
0: Yeah, we're a little bit flat after Chinese New Year, so maybe just to give you some highlights on the big numbers. For our sort of global index on the Baltic Air Freight Index, BAI 00, we edged up slightly 1.3%, trimming its declines over 12 months to minus 30%. Uh, the latest, the TAC data is unsurprising, giving the latest number of air cargo volumes from IATA, showing an 8% fall in demand from 2022 in terms of cargo tonne kilometers, and signs of a revival in shipping as a cheaper, more viable alternative again. If we're looking at the Asia markets following Chinese New Year, outbound Hong Kong dropped 9%, taking its full year on year to minus 40%, but thereabouts. Uh, Out of Shanghai, it rebounded slightly. So it's in positive territory to close to plus 10%, cutting its decline to minus 33%. But on thin volumes with a high proportion, of which being contract rates rather than lower spot rates. So it's really the contract rates still holding up those prices in our indices. Lastly, in sort of other markets, are more firmer. So if you're looking at outbound Frankfurt, we saw an increase of plus 9.6% week on week, cutting its decline year on year to minus 17%. Chicago outbound was up 5%, bringing the year to year change being flat. The prices continue to hold up better on the transatlantic routes than in Asia, which sparked higher during the pandemic. Peyton, how are these rates
2: at the moment that we're seeing? How are they comparing to, say, a year ago or maybe even to
0: pre-COVID 2019, early 2020? So if we're looking at outbound China year on year, we're seeing declines around the 30 to 50% level. And that's outbound China. So inbound China, year on year, declines around the 25% level. Hong Kong is pretty similar. But where we're seeing bigger differences is outbound India. And that's now pushing to negative territory, 60%. And Vietnam is taking a real hammering. And that's down nearly 75% year on year. Now, interestingly, if we look at the pre-COVID levels, actually... The prices on most of the markets tend to be higher, but some big differences are still kind of reflecting year on year. And just to give you some some ideas, if we're looking at China to the United States, the prices pre-COVID to now is still up 50%. From China to Europe, it's up near 80 to 90%. But then again, if we're looking at that India market, so India, Europe, we're now at only plus 10%. If we're looking in the United States, it's flat. It's same as, as pre COVID levels. And actually, from Vietnam to the US, we're now in negative territory to around minus 10, 20%. And remember, the fundamental conditions in the market have changed in so far, we're now in an era of high interest rates and high fuel costs. So you're seeing particularly spot markets being hammered.
2: It's quite a nuanced market in in that sense. Then, so some of those markets are still in credit, but as you say, with the rider that the market is very different versus that pre-COVID market. But where are you seeing growth? Where's the big positives out there at the moment?
0: Yeah, we're seeing still an uptick in the Mexican market. Seems lots of interest there. I think uh, in the techs moved in there, and you've got IBM and some others. Brazil seems to be down. We also, and I think we mentioned in the past, some of those diversification of supply chains away from China. And so you're seeing people like Apple moving into India and Vietnam. The other things that as a positive, a little bit selfishly, is as TAC index, we do publish on social media our weekly bulletins from our editor, Neil Wilson. So those come out every Tuesday, but we'll be adding um, some data insight posts directly from our data team who are based in London, so essentially from our quant team. And the type of thing we'll be talking about there is going in a little bit more detail on how to read the charts, because we get asked this from our users in any case. So one of, one of the interesting sort of metrics to look at are the quintiles, particularly out of China. And what we've been seeing is, is there's been a strong downward trend in the quintiles from China to the US, and those have been the lowest in two years. So these are the spot prices pulling down on the market. The upper quintile is still holding quite strong because this is supported by the high contract rates from 2022. But there are questions around, will this hold? And I think you've had some other articles in the press. I think Etihad was saying there are these contract rates in the market and they are multi-year contracts. So it really depends on are they going to hold are they going to buckle? <laughs> we don't know, but they, it, it's looking like they might be a, well, post-Chinese new year will be interesting to see where the contract rates go, put it that way.
2: So Peyton, just for our listeners, who might be some of them more familiar with the container shipping market, where we're seeing contracts being renegotiated as the spot market is declined. So there's a lag, but those two types of arrangements are catching up with one another are we seeing the same in air cargo or is that a different type of contract maybe you can explain
0: how it varies so in 2023 we are seeing a move to more spot market pricing but there are some nuances there are multi-year contracts still in place whether they can hold or they'll break down uh, we don't know but we're also seeing a significant move to these new index linked agreements and these might be airline co-sharing agreements or shipper to forwarder agreements. The pressure will be on the sellers of capacity because the demand is is soft at the moment.
2: Peyton Burnett, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thank you very much, Mike. Alex, as we heard from Peyton there, the Mexican market is one of the few air cargo sectors looking quite healthy, but... Not everyone operating in the Mexican market are happy, are they?
5: Well, yeah, it's been quite a a stir, really, because the Mexican government has decided that the main airport in Mexico City is congested. And so it wants to ban freighter operations there. And it gave the airlines 90 days to move to a new airport. Apparently, the new airport's really good. So it's nothing against the airport. But obviously, if you've got passenger or belly operations coming into one airport, freighter operations in the other, it gets a bit more complex, a bit more expensive. And especially for companies like Lufthansa and KLM, which have their own handling operations there, which are now going to have to be split across two airports with very little time given to sort it out. So there's some unhappy Mexican operators right now. Thank you, Alex. Peter, shipping rates. What's
2: going on with spot rates as we speak now, second week of February?
4: Well, it's not nice if I were to judge that by the eyes of a carrier out there, because on the main trades, to be brief, they are at loss-making levels right now. So just look left, right and center, for East to North Europe, already loss-making territory for those operating in the spot market. And that brings me to... To another fine comment, if I may, uh, we just discussed AP Molomask just before, and and you can really see also from their guidance into this year, EBIT at two to five billion US. That to me is a carrier that still holds significant exposure to the long term contract markets and not full exposure to the spot market, because in our view, the spot rates on the main holds out of Far East, which are for a large extent perhaps with the Far East to US East Coast as the one exception. Loss-making right now, so it's really a tough time. Also, a point in time when carriers definitely need to um, well deploy fleet in a more efficient way going forward. Filling factor will definitely be the name of the game for profitability for many of those. And and of course, that leaves me with the one uh, market uh, that that basically brings all the fun hair to our top of our heads. Sorry about that. The crazy little image uh, mike no uh, no offense meant but uh, I, I,
2: I like the way you say that while you're looking at my bald head
4: <laughs> well speaking of bald eagles but no it's a it's the north atlantic trade of course where it's still buoyant and where carriers are actually still avoiding to blank any a meaningful extent of sailings there so uh, when we see still the uh, the congestion at either side of the north atlantic coming down it is still a matter of time and i must say well i had told you before I expect this trade also to follow sooner rather than later, but it, it, it keeps surprising on the upside to my extent. But let's see when we speak again after TPM, uh, for instance, where the rates will be for that trade at that point in time. They are 200% up from pre-pandemic right now. So still ample room for, uh, for say, downside risk, but something that global shippers or especially North Atlantic shippers will embrace also a, a falling, following trend on that
2: trade. I think you used the phrase there, Peter, that lines are trying to find a more efficient use of their vessels or their fleet. How does that play out for customers, though? When we talk about them making their fleets more efficient, what does that mean for the schedules that customers can expect? Lots of capacity is being withdrawn, is it?
4: It's not perfect for global shippers when the carriers want and more efficient use of their ships because that means they are blanking sailings to fill up those that are sailing. It means also that they may hesitate or they may not hesitate blanking sailings on trades that they would otherwise be sailing. So this is not only, say, the backhaul business out of Europe to Far East, that where reefer customers are definitely feeling and taking a lot of heat out of all the blank sailings that they can see from Far East into Europe, because they basically get like, two-month notice saying that, okay, this ship that we expected to send our, say, French fries back to the Far East on uh, is not arriving anytime soon, so what's up here? So definitely, I mean, uh, the words that we give or the advice, what we talk about with our customers is, of course, that they should be absolutely on top of their own supply chains, making sure that they have, say, contracts in place, the right clauses to avoid say, any at least financial damage from anything like this. And they should, of course, move their essential cargoes on guaranteed sailings. Uh, and there's a way around this, of course, some of it in, in the form of surcharges, but also some of it in the form of closer relationships with the carriers or freight forwarders. So there are a way around this. But if you're just, say, a pure spot market player, happy-go-lucky, then you'll feel the heat of this carrier uh, capacity management that we will see for the entirety of 2023.
2: And what else are we seeing from carriers on that capacity management piece? Are we seeing, I don't know, s- slow steaming, canceling orders, uh, hot, cold layups? What else are they up to?
4: Well, 750,000 TEUs approximately is right now in some sort of hot layup. Uh, our expectations uh, that we revealed some three months ago, uh, we said that we could easily see a million TEUs in uh, layup this year. So we're a good way to that number. And I must say that outright cancellations for the shipyards. I mean, those ship owners with an exposure to other shipping sectors than container shipping may want to swap, say, five container ships to tankers or dry bulkers, but it's not for everyone. So our expectations are for those investors and those carriers with orders to to be delivered in 2023 to postpone one quarter of everything that would otherwise be coming on stream this year. So that's obviously something to look out for. But we're also seeing that uh, that demolition is picking up and picking up from a super low level, of course. So what we have here in the early days of of Feb only matches the full year of last year, but that's like 10,000 TEUs. That's one semi-large container ship, right? So for the entirety of the the year, our expectations are also for 400,000 TEUs to leave the fleet. So there's a cleanup on the way and something that carriers will definitely attend to while also, say, handing back as early as possible or re-delivery of chartered in tonnage, which for the main carriers amounts to half of their operating fleet.
2: Thank you, Peter. I just, uh, another story. I know that Alex has been following this rather keenly and I'm sure she'll have a question for you in a moment, but Zenita, you've, uh, bravely, I think we can say, launched a heroes and villains campaign. Now this is going to name and chain the best and worst environmentally efficient carriers. Maybe you can explain how this Hall of shame and fame works, Peter, and who's doing well and who isn't.
4: Well, I think what we're doing here is to weed out those that are in the market only for greenwashing. So we name and fame the top performers on the trades that we follow, making it easy for global shippers to reward the carriers with the lowest carbon footprint with their cargo allotments. So what we do here in cooperation with our partner Marine Benchmark is that we go as deep as the vessel specifications, because this, of course, also relies very much on what kind of ship do you deploy on the individual trades. So we literally nail whether carbon emission per cargo ton, uh, whether that is good or bad, by defining, do the carrier deploy big enough ships? Can they fill them up? Uh, Do they uh, speed too fast? Or how do they literally operate on this individual trade? So we're actually making a forward-looking, actionable insight for those shippers, and not only say reporting back on what happened in the past. So this is really a tool going forward that I expect to see, uh, say debated quite widely out there, and I think that is really what we need. We need to disclose those that are doing a really good job, but also some with room for improvement.
5: I love the fact that you're uh, changing it from name and shame to name and fame, because shame is going to be the ones that people remember. It always is. For every top, there's a bottom. But I'm quite I'm So, have there been any surprises so far, Peter, that you hadn't expected to see on a particular lane?
4: I think what we are trying to do with this is definitely uh, train and educate everyone in the market to to make use of this new tool uh, because it, it seems as if, I mean, uh, if you go down to Tesco, you can see the carbon footprint on the sausages that you buy, but you cannot really relate to that. But in this case, we basically deliver a business-to-business actionable tool. And going forward, hopefully... The top performers will also embrace this and look at this as an opportunity actually to perhaps say that we're actually doing a really good job here. And if you reward us with your cargo allotment uh, at at no specifically extra cost, then that's a given for you. So in terms of surprises, I think we've got plenty of surprises for you in uh, in the deck that we have stacked in front of you. And we will definitely reveal that in the coming weeks and months when the Senate's carbon emission index will go public on a regular basis. And uh, I look forward to it. seeing also the, the surprises out there and take part in the discussion and debate that will definitely follow in the wake when carriers may or may not disagree with this. But let me just assure you that, of course, we did also get some feedback from uh, select carriers in the market and they, they are not necessarily disagreeing, if I can put it like that. So they're nodding and saying that this actually looks fine i'd
5: be interested to hear evergreen's response but yeah let's see how we get on it's certainly
2: an admirable initiative i hope it works out for you guys because we need something like that in our industry to get these emissions down peter sand alex lunaid thanks for joining me on the podcast today
5: thanks mike always a pleasure
2: Welcome back to part two of this Lodestar podcast and today we're going to look at something a little bit different and that is the threat posed to logistics infrastructure and trade from the weather and climate change and to do this I'm joined today by two world experts in their fields and they come at this from very different perspectives. First up we have Michael Page, who is a certified broadcast meteorologist based in Boston, who makes regular appearances across local and national television networks in the US. Hello, Michael.
3: Hi, good to be with you.
2: Thanks for coming on. And secondly, we have joining us Jasper Vashur, whose name I can't pronounce very well, so I'm sticking with that version. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford. His research focuses on the risks that transport and trade systems face. As a result of climate change and the interconnectivity of networks.
1: Welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Jasper. Yes, thank you, Mike. Great to have you on your show.
2: Jasper, if I might start with you first. You and your colleagues have co-authored a fascinating and important new study into the multi-hazard risk posed by factors, including climate change to the global port infrastructure. And you've also looked at how this impacts related trade and logistics risks. Just... For our listeners, this study, it's provided the first ever real detailed picture of climate risk and how that affects 1,340 ports around the world. And for any people listening out there who've ever read a a top 100 container ports report, I haven't put those things together and that is a nightmare and they're the top 100. So we've got 1,340 is quite an accomplishment. Now you identify port specific risks of $7.5 billion per year. What sort of level of trade risk does that add up to on top of this specific risk support? And how serious are
1: these issues for the global economy? Are people taking it serious enough? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, And and thanks for summarizing the paper. As you say, what we found is that if you look at infrastructure damages alone, so that's the cost of reconstruction infrastructure at these 1,340 ports, that equals around 7.5 billion but on top of that, it actually puts almost 10 times the amount in trade value at risk. So that's the the risk that the value of trade moving to port faces because ports might be also facing downtime associated with natural disasters. So that this is quite a big number. It's In relative terms, it might only be it's a percentage of global maritime trade. But we have to think about this in different terms, that this can happen every year. So it could be that... Any given year we face much less, but then in one year we can actually face a big multiplication of this. So it could be quite significant if you um, think about this in absolute terms. What is more important is also thinking about this in relative terms, what this means for certain countries. And I'm specifically referring to small island developing states who, by their very nature, for their economy they're much more um, dependent on imports maritime imports especially and we see that the risk to these islands in terms of the impact it could have on the economy climate risk is much larger than for most of the advanced countries and the global economy
2: and jasper is this rising water levels or are we talking about extreme sea conditions uh, i think you said extreme sea conditions are going to cause operational disruptions at something like 40 percent of
1: Port globally, is that over a certain time scale? Yeah, we in this study we have now looked at the historical record, so at the what is the present day risks which could be associated with extreme winds, coastal flooding, river flooding, extreme rainfall, waves, etc. and we bring this all together in this analysis and now we're doing some follow-up work to also look at the implications of climate change where we will already see that the risk will almost double by 2050, irrespective of what kind of emission scenario we're going to take. And that's a a critical point to make here.
2: Michael, may I bring you in here? We've previously discussed some of these risks. In fact, we discussed the strange case of weather patterns that were contributory factors that prompted a spate of container ships to lose thousands of boxes overboard during the Northern hemisphere winter. This was back late 2020 and early 2021, but it's something that happens relatively often, just not in those sorts of numbers. Can you explain how, in your work, how weather extremes are causing disruptions to shipping of this type or other types?
3: Absolutely. So what Jasper was just talking about is something we focus on in weather, and that's the general increase in certain conditions that would lend itself to sea level rise all the time which can result in what we call sunny day flooding, for example, at ports, meaning there is actually no storm, but the sea level is just rising. So it's becoming easier to have flooding in a non-storm environment. And then as you just said, when you have sea level rising near ports and you have a storm that perhaps is made stronger because of climate impacts, then it's like a double whammy. So offshore, we were looking at those storms when we last spoke of being more powerful so you have oceans that generally speaking are staying warmer longer into the winter season that tends to add more fuel to storms that strengthen over the winter time so if you have a stronger storm meaning a lower pressure you can get stronger winds which generates bigger waves and potentially can cause more trouble for ships trying to cross through those oceans so you really have a couple of different things one Not necessarily storms caused by climate change. We're very careful not to say that climate change is causing these storms, but it's making it much, much easier for, quote unquote, normal storms to have a more significant and outside impact than we would usually expect.
2: Michael, you follow in your way these wasting hurricane and typhoon seasons and the risks that comes from that and how that impacts supply chains, whether that's at sea or port or inland. You're covering this all the time now, aren't you? I mean, it seems to be there's a big weather event all the time. How serious is this impact in terms of how it affects those supply chains, those logistics networks, those ports? Society, perhaps, that you, when you're covering it, they're extreme, aren't they?
3: Absolutely. And, and you're right. You do have to be somewhat nuanced here because the research is not conclusive enough to say, okay, we're having more hurricanes or more typhoons. There's actually a lot of conflicting research. But what is pretty clear is that the storms that do develop tend to be more powerful and have bigger impacts. Part of that is because, like I said, you have climate change kind of juicing these things up, whether it be from warmer seas or warmer air, meaning there's more moisture that can be in the air, or just more people living near the coastline. That too has a big impact. You have a lot of this infrastructure that is right near the coastline. So when you do have one of these storms coming at the coast, now all of a sudden you might have oil refineries shutting down. You might have sugar refineries shutting down. These industries are basically just saying, you know what? We know the storms are coming now, so we're going to preemptively shut down to try to make the spin up better on the backside. But in so doing, you're still getting disruption. So by having more intense storms, you're going to have more people saying, you know what, let's just shut down, let the storm go by. And hopefully that actually mitigates the risk than trying to work through it and getting surprised. And actually, having more impacts from a storm that you underestimate. So, if
2: we're saying that these storms have been getting exponentially more powerful and more damaging and potentially cause bigger risks, is there also a fact that as this has increased in severity over time, that a lot of the infrastructure itself was built in a time when the risk wasn't as serious as it is now? So, it's actually more prone to be damaged.
3: This is a huge problem. And this is actually one of the biggest problems that countries face across the world, including the United States. Our infrastructure was built decades ago, and unfortunately, it's very expensive to rebuild infrastructure. So in many cases, you have to wait for the infrastructure to go down in a storm to then rebuild it. And then there's the debate, well, how much do we want to spend to rebuild it? Because let's say, even if you're just a private business, nothing to do with the government, let's say you get insurance money, you might be getting insurance money to rebuild what you just had. But clearly what you just had isn't going to be able to withstand storms of the future. So then are you throwing good money after bad? And you're not rebuilding strong enough for the future. So there's no easy solution to this. It's a very expensive problem. In some ways, we don't even know what we have to rebuild for because we're still trying to ascertain what will the impact be and how quickly. As Jasper said, this could be a couple of years down the road, but depending on how things play out in terms of emissions... We don't know what the top end is. And when we reach the top end, there's a lot of variables in play between now and the next couple of decades.
2: Jasper, did you look at at this from uh, maybe some of the bigger ports around the world and whether they need to build back bigger and uh, assume that storms might get worse in the future? Is this something that you looked at?
1: Yeah, we looked at the, uh, the climate change impact, but also in co-evolution with the evolution of trades because on the one hand you have climate change uh, which will will add uncertainty to the next few decades but also we have uncertainty of what will the global economy look like in 2050 and beyond and how might that affect trade because risk is not solely determined by climate change but also how much additional infrastructure will be needed at port. And what we see is that In a lot of developing countries, there is actually a huge opportunity here because if we take Africa, there's a massive boom now of infrastructure investment that has to take place in this continent. And what the point we're trying to make there is if you're making this investment now, please make sure that you include climate change in your investment upfront because it will be so much cheaper to add a bit more elevation to your terminals or make them a bit stronger than having to retrofit them later on. But what we're seeing for a lot of advanced economies where trade might stagnate in the future and climate change will get worse, they will have to retrofit ports and this could be prohibitively expensive. And it's the question, who's actually going to pay for this?
2: And will trade stagnate? I've not seen any uh, sign of that just yet. Jasper, well, to both of you, in fact, are people taking this risk seriously enough in terms of how they're investing or really about how they're focusing in on what this means for the global economy, for trade, for shipping, for logistics, for port. I mean, I'll maybe put it a different way. Is the media taking this seriously enough? Are we asking the right questions?
3: Well, as someone in the media, I guess I'll jump in first. I guess my biggest problem, and again, I say this very clearly as someone in the media, is how non-scientists in the media frame the issue of climate change. In many cases, particularly in US media, there's this sense of scare. We have to basically frighten people into the fact that weather is extreme all the time, it's getting more extreme and it's going to cause all this damage. And in some ways, that's true. That's true that things are getting more extreme, there are more risks. I don't know that it's very helpful in spurring action though because if you just scare people, sometimes that will shut them down. And as Jasper said, you really need some creative thinking here about how we can, okay, recognize the problem and then address the problem and be realistic about it and not just throw our hands up and say, well, it's bad, it's getting worse, so what am I gonna be able to do about it? So that's my biggest gripe. And these companies that do take it seriously, they have a lot to gain. But again, you have to think not just about the storms, but about the everyday sea level rise. And remember that in a couple of years, somewhere where I am in the Northeast in Boston, we could have several days a month where we're getting flooding with no storm. It's a beautiful blue sky day here, and we have to think, okay, we could be getting disruptive flooding. Maybe it's only a foot, two feet as a port, but that's a problem. You can't have water you know, where you're trying to move cargo. So you have to think, even if there's not a storm, we're going to have this problem that we have to live with daily.
1: Yeah, I totally uh, agree with Michael there. And and what we try to do is frame this in terms of opportunities and not in terms of just increasing the number of, of difficulties that one may face. And I think, going back to your first point, I think people do take this serious. A lot of port authorities are developing climate change strategies, taking proactive action, looking in the future. But then there's also a lot of port where this kind of long-term thinking is just more difficult because they're more focused on their key uh, performance indicators and more the sort of shorter-term objectives. But as Mike also said, there's a lot to gain from actually doing something. And actually, the nice thing about this, the fact that we're talking about a globalized system here, the maritime sector, which means that if one port does something, does actually do adaptation... It will actually have a positive effect of all, on all other ports that depend on this. And that's, I think, sort of the, the good
3: or the nice thing about this. The only other thing I was going to add, I spoke a couple of years ago to someone in the U.S. Navy, and obviously commerce and Navy have two different objectives, but very clearly he said his biggest concern was climate change. And I think it's applicable to the discussion of ports because like ports, the Navy lives on the ocean and has bases around the world. So they were less worried when I spoke to them a couple years ago about one particular enemy and more concerned about this, quote unquote, natural enemy that they face all over and need to find solutions for.
2: That's a very good point, Michael. Um, and Jasper Vashore, Michael Page, thank you very much for joining me today on the Star podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC, Index and Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenita, our sea Freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.